Friday, December 29th, 1905. I wake as usual to the sound of hammering. Workmen here at six or a little after. Raymond gets me some hot water shortly after seven. I make my toilet and issue forth. A perfect day. It's sunshine, a warm flood, the air soft and yet with a certain freshness in it. Margaret goes about with only a cotton blouse and a dress over midsummer garments. I can bear my lightest serge jacket, but sometimes I'd have been glad to take it off. The day is so perfect that soon after breakfast, Fielder is made to hitch up the team, and we three go off in the sunshine, avoiding the mangled wood where the turpentine men have wrought such havoc. Going down to the Lake Lindsay service, the Baptist Church has service every second Saturday and Sunday, and the school is closed now for the holidays. And we see the place where the barbecues are held. There's a pit being dug and half an ox roasted, and a general jollification indulged in, and at times enter politics or religion to the foray. We meet as we drive through the wood on one or the other of the multitudinous sand roads, country neighbors, typical crackers, brown men in shirt sleeves and slouch hats. One, an individual called Grubbs, who's married a widow and lives near a pond. Mayo, I think. We pass several cracker houses. When we get to Bodine Grove, the climax is reached. I remembered it as a smiling place full of flowers, a generous, well-kept house, and a grove of golden fruit. Today there is not a trace of the plantation Raymond and the McKays all worked so hard over. Its rainy yellow broom sage waves shoulder high over the acres where the grove was until 10 or 12 years ago. I think it's something like 19 years since I was there last. The house I was entertained in was burned to the ground before the great frost killed the trees. In this little shanty I understand the McKays lived for the last years. I suppose it may have on the ground floor four or five rooms, but it is ramshackle and is unlike our usual family dwelling. The barn is a respectable building and the drive bordered with stone, still visible through the weeds. A camphor tree is beautiful and there are some ornamental cacti, a date palm with the undergrowth and some choked and dying grapes. A pear tree was still bearing fruit in the summer when Margaret and Raymond were here. These woods had been leased to the turpentine men and now even sold the timbering rights so there's nothing left. Instead of founding a place here, they spent a few ineffectual years, 30 odd thousand dollars, and left the land, or will leave it stripped and torn and desolate, even of such somber beauty as it wore to welcome them. May we do better at Chinsegat, but I don't know. On we go out of the white picket gate past the pond where they used to water the horses. It is fringed with live oak and in its dark and rather menacing way is good to look at. Over the gently rising land beyond the pond, Sue Skipper lived. We see the roof of her house. She was Raymond's first love, a brown-eyed, brown-legged cracker girl who went to the same country school as Raymond. He showed us the direction through the pines where his path crossed hers and where with beating heart he used to stand and wait for her and wish that she might fall in the pond in its way so that he could fly in and rescue her. Then she would come, and instead of falling in the pond, would greet him shyly and barely allow him to carry her books for her. Her people were poor, and she used to engage in an occupation for livelihood, which I do not properly comprehend. Raymond says she was the best hand in the country with the drawing knife, and he seems to mean she made shingles. On we go through the wood. We stop at the prettiest little house we've seen. There is a roofed well that has special charm for the eye. There is a frame raised about 15 feet in which hollowed gourds are singing and roses are blooming about the place and shrubs are flowering. A beautiful gardenia called Cape Jessamine fills the air with fragrance and there is a nice little orange plantation in the slope behind the house if I remember. This is Freeman's, a man two or three years older than Raymond who was the big boy at the Rock Hill School when W.A. Fulton taught there and Raymond laid the foundation of his friendship with that excellent and versatile person. Well, Freeman sees us and comes out lifting his hat and saying, Raymond, hello. He is the same yellow-brown creature as most of the inhabitants, but his face has some force and plenty of good humor. He asks us in and we go. At the door, we are presented to his bride.
Welcome to the Elizabeth Robbins Diary Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Kaler. Today's diary entry details Elizabeth's first visit to Hernando County when their dreams for Chinsegat were still in their infancy. But it also reflects the hardships of pioneer life and reminds us that not every story ends successfully. You can sense her anxiousness, and she was right to feel it. The Great Depression came razor close to robbing them of the property. Jim Crow era attitudes would erode their relationship with some locals, and Elizabeth's relationship with Raymond would become incredibly strained, almost to breaking over his wife Margaret's and Elizabeth's failure to understand one another. It is such a great reminder that dreams are risky business. Even when they are accomplished, they never end up looking exactly like we imagined. The same can be true of this podcast. Although I wouldn't remotely try to compare this project with pioneer life or family relations, it nevertheless was a dream and is now reality. We're at the end of season one and it definitely looks different than the initial concept. And I thought it would be fun to look back on it and discuss it with several other people who also had a stake in the dream. Our three guests today each have a different perspective. Barry is our graphic designer and the first subscriber to the podcast. He had no prior knowledge of Elizabeth Orton Seagate, so all the material was brand new to him. Andrea Hedick-Reed, on the other hand, is a descendant of a founding family of Brooksville and an avid historian, as well as the creator of our tourbvl.com historic walking tour. And Mayor Blake Bell is also a founding family descendant and local historian and was featured as a guest in episode nine. Today, we're gonna talk about the first season, fill in some gaps it left and answer listener questions. Just tell us something about yourself and we'll go from there. Blake, you get to go first. Hey, Blake Bell. Uh, It's happy to be back here with you, Natalie, on this great podcast and looking forward to talking about how successful it is and our favorite moments. Woohoo, Andrea. I'm Andrea Hedick-Reed. Blake would be a fourth cousin of mine, and um, we're related through the McCallans, and our families came here together, which is really neat. Our four times great-grandfathers, Francis Etterington and Anderson Mayo, Francis Etterington being his, and Anderson Mayo being mine, came here as uh, from South Carolina. They were plantation owners in South Carolina. They came here together mm-hmm. um, and found this this land, and at, at, this, at this time, um, I can't. I know that uh, what is now Snow Hill, which uh, Anderson Mayo settled on, was Tiger Tail Hill. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure of the, I know Bird Pearson owned this land at that time, but they both found land and they found hills uh, that uh, were close to each other and both decided that they wanted to be a part of the growth of Brooksville in this area and, and wanted to start over again in this area. So that's uh, my connection to Blake and to Chinsegat. I just love that. We have a video that I recorded a couple years back with Andrea and Blake, and we'll put that in the show notes, but super fun to think about your great, 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 great grandpas being here, like what, 170, 180 years ago. And here Mm -hmm. you guys are sitting in the same property today. That's so fun. And uh, our last guest is Barry. Yeah, I'm Barry Mindel. I own Design. I'm a graphic designer here in Brooksville. And so, yeah, so it's been so eye-opening watching the uh, podcast and seeing this whole thing come to life. I've learned so much about the history of the area, the people and places. Um, you know, working with Natalie as the graphic designer, um, doing a lot with Brooksville Main Street, mm-hmm. um, kind of hearing some of the stories and hearing some of the history piecemeal to really hear it all in one podcast like this has been amazing. Love it. And uh, yeah, excited to kind of hear what everybody's learned from it. And you do have a little family history connected to your father and his work that he used to do here. So talk to me about your dad. Correct. So my dad is a professor of geography at the University of South Florida. He's on the St. Petersburg campus. And he has actually been doing a number of field trips to Chinsegat Hill um, that predated us moving to Brooksville and was actually probably half the reason we moved up here is he always just loved this particular place and said I don't care if I have to commute for an hour every day it's worth it to get to Brooksville and be closer to Chinsegat Hill. That's awesome yeah and that's a part of the story we haven't really covered but after Elizabeth um, gives the property officially over to Raymond and then after he passes away it goes into the hands of UF for a little bit University of Florida and then it ends up in the hands of University of South Florida for a long time. And there were professors like your dad that would bring their students up here, which is super fun. 
So we're going to kick off with an easy one. And the first question is actually going to Barry to uh, give us the story behind the creation of the show cover graphic. Yes. So it was really, really funny how it came together. Um, I was actually snooping around through the library of photos that Natalie had taken from New York and whatnot of all the podcast entries and the writings from Elizabeth. And, you know, I was kind of looking through it thinking, let's kind of see what we can find, if we can find any writings, any elements, any icons or whatever that we could take from it. And I stumbled across one. I believe it was from 1951 or 1952. The podcast or the diary cover had this perfect front page on it. It had the initials ER and it said diary underneath. I'm like, wouldn't this be amazing to just put the word podcast underneath and you have a logo? Like, that's, you know, that's how you can come together. So I did that. Um, I sketched it up. I put it together. I sent it over to Natalie. And it was kind of funny. At first, she kind of looked at me like, you know, why are you sending me this mess of a logo? It looks unfinished. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what is this? This is not very well done, Barry. <laughs> And, and I'm like, well, you kind of are criticizing Elizabeth's own handwriting <laughs> at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it was really fun. So I think from there, everybody kind of really gravitated towards the concept and what mm -hmm. we were going for. And that is what you see on the logo. Yeah, and, and we did adjust the E and the R used to be on top of each other. Correct. And we did move them side by side just to make it a little easier. But that is her actual handwriting, which is pretty amazing. And then uh, we ended up with the tambourine and the riding gloves on there, which are two items that are in the house at Chinsegat. The house does not have a ton of Elizabeth's things, but that makes what we do have even more amazing. And the riding gloves, uh, you can actually see her wearing in some of the photographs. And then the tambourine is one of my favorite things that we have on the whole property. It was something that she took on tour with her when she was acting in the United States with the Count of Monte Cristo. And it was a prop that she had in the play. And she would write the city that she was in, the date that it was, and the hotel that she was staying at for every place that she was along the tour. And it's super fun because if you look at the top of the tambourine, it's kind of spread out and her handwriting is big. And then as she goes further and further down, the handwriting keeps getting tinier and tinier and tinier. And uh, But it's a great recording. And one day when I was managing here and I didn't want to do any work, I actually it took several days to have a magnifying glass and figured out every city hotel and date that was on there which i'm really glad we did because that was like six years ago and it's really hard to read even now but um, that's a treasure and and so that's how that ended up on the the cover cover and then i wanted to pull up these other ones to see if either of you or anybody else wanted to talk about any of the other covers that you thought were particularly interesting or connected to I guess you could talk about yours like if you wanted to yeah so I was on episode nine with my uncle Bruce Snow uh, and the cover photo of that is a picture of brothers Ernest and Mallory Snow uh, the last two Edderingtons to own the home they obviously are snows um, but the last two of my family members to own the home they sell the home to the Robins and the early 1900s. Um, Ernest ends up staying on the property until about 1921, 22-ish, uh, when he sells the rest of his property to um, Elizabeth and Raymond. But that uh, picture is uh, very special, obviously, to me and my family. Uh, there's so many uh, f uh, people in my family who we, I see Ernest in, in that yeah, photo. Sure. And, um, it, the likeness is is clearly there, but uh, love having that photograph uh, with Chinsigat in the background, and, and it's just interesting, you know, as we discussed in our episode, uh, so many things in this world have have changed, but so many things are still the same, really, and I think that photo speaks to that. The one that Blake is referring to, uh, it's really fun to see Ernest and Mallory together. They both married Hedicks, which I come from the Hedick family. Um, and Ernest had several children with his wife, Barbara Hedick, before she passed away during childbirth and then married um, Blake's great-grandmother, Cora McCowan, uh, who was actually Barbara Hedick's first cousin. But Mallory settled, and if you talk to any of the families from around here that um, 
are from you know me, me and Blake are very tied in the in the like in the realm of the snows and Mallory settled on Mayo Hill which is now known as Snow Hill and um, their their family house is still there when um, my three times great-grandparents had their the Robins hosted their golden wedding anniversary here um, music was a huge part of that yeah. and it seems like locals came together to be involved and to create the music for that and it was a big deal uh, the music was a big portion or a big part of everything here at Chinsega the Robins love to host things um, and then you know in Home Sweet Home they talk about the Snow Hill Band so obviously the families in general just entertainment wise you know tried to create music we're going to all talk about something that we learned this season, either from doing the podcast or listening to it. Gosh, I feel like I learned so much on each episode, honestly, <laughs> Natalie. I did. Because um, then I can go like straight into the human trafficking, which I, I that, that does not specifically tie to uh, Brooksville, but even um, discussing like how they called it the white slave trade. And then the renaming of it to mm-hmm. the, you know, to the human trafficking, mm-hmm. and the, there became different trafficking. And that that episode, I felt left so much to be desired. And I, <laughs> I'm curious so much. I, I am very curious what else, because she was, they, the Robins were shakers and movers. Mm-hmm. They were people who got involved in, you know, things that were probably politically, um, maybe a little risky at that time and to hear more about you know you hear a lot about um, her and Margaret and and women's suffrage but to hear about more aside from the novel and that one night on Covington Street in London what she did to research human trafficking Mm -hmm. and obviously that one night affected her tremendously so I'm sure that there is much more of her life that she devoted to that and obviously the book had a huge impact on not you know that the book had a huge impact in general all over the world so to hear more of her work and i think when you hear like i'm not sure which episode it is but she comes back and she's at the funeral and the people around here are even saying hey we're inspired by what you do you know mm-hmm. she 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 had an impact and and people were pretty excited that she was around here and that she was interested in the people around here so to hear more about what she did human trafficking wise the CCC episode for me is where I learned a ton. You hear so much about the different buildings, um, the cannery. There was a building you told me not too long ago, and you're like, hey, that was CCC. Mm-hmm. And to learn that that was a part of the New Deal um, and that that was a, that was a nationwide initiative. Um, but learning so much about the impact that the CCC had on not only Brooksville, but Florida, and the nation that was a really good episode i feel like i learned a lot about the impact that the ccc had on the young men of that day and what they needed at that time and also what they did infrastructure wise and um and also just tells you a lot about that time you know they came here and they hadn't had a good meal and forever and they come here and they stuff their faces because they're (laughs) hungry and there's good meals here and they get their first set of good boots and they're pumped about it and I remember my granddad and me and Blake have kind of talked about our granddads and like that that time where they were just so poor and like they were you know like they fortunately they were farmers and they had great food and they were able to kind of get through but just um they were a lot of them were barefoot so to see a good pair of boots they were like this is awesome i wanted to talk about the home of the tangerine episode Mm -hmm. and i learned so much obviously brooksville is the home of the tangerine and and you know we always talk about it being the home of the tangerine but really the the um historical um aspect of that episode was so interesting to hear Jim Kimbrough talk about really why Brooksville was the home of the tangerine. I mean, we intentional, how intentional, very much so, very much. And why, why all roads lead to Brooksville. Right. Um, So that, that episode was so uh, interesting to me. Uh, The CCC episode obviously was very interesting as well. Um, The Snow Hill band uh, loved hearing about that. Uh, But, you know, in the last episode, um, just hearing about the funeral. And I think I told you, Natalie, it takes me back to how so many things in this world have changed, but so many things are still the same. We still go to family funerals at Lake Lindsay, and it has the exact same feeling that Elizabeth Robbins wrote about over 100 years ago attending a funeral at Lake Lindsay. And it's because it's that sense of community and that sense of small 
small town community feel, but also family there and family that's been buried there for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And and at that going to that same spot to bury loved ones almost as a homecoming, but also as a reunion um, that still to this day has the exact same feeling that Elizabeth writes about. And just so much history that um, um, that Elizabeth brings to the table, uh, living her life during this period of time. And, and she took great uh, notes and kept yes. great record <laughs> and thankful that she did that because, um, you know, there are um, areas of my family where there have been uh, great records kept, including the Anderson Mayo Journal when they traveled down from South Carolina mm-hmm. to Florida when Anderson and Francis traveled down. That's a that's a gem, obviously, that we have. But then there are areas of uh, like the Ernest Snow area era where he didn't keep, you know, right. a journal every day. So kind of having an insight into his life and his wife's life and his um, children's life on the hill through these diaries is um, incredible and and gives us better insight into what it was like living back then as well. Yeah. And it's such a happy surprise when you come across those things and the transcriptions. I think we still have about 7,000 pages to do, so there'll be a lot more surprises. Barry, how about you? It was incredible. I mean, yeah, and this is where it was kind of fun, kind of being the outsider uh, of the bunch and listening to all of this, almost hearing it for the first time. Mm You know, and just hearing some of the names that are familiar and hearing some of these stories, which quite frankly feel like they could, like any one of these episodes kind of feels like it could be made into a movie or a TV show mm-hmm. in a way um, yes. with, with how detailed it gets. So, and, and how kind of massive the, like the things that Elizabeth Robbins was involved in was. And I think that was probably the biggest thing I took away from it was how many kind of different eras that she touched and was a part of, and the major movements that she really had a very profound impact on. You know, things you hear about in textbooks, but you obviously don't hear her name. And to kind of hear her involvement in stuff like the, uh, you know, the women's suffrage movement, which was, I think, episode two, Mm -hmm. was really, really good. I loved her, way of bringing the suffrage movement to the wealthy class Mm -hmm. of just plain putting it on a play and you know putting it in front of them that way so they were forced to hear about the issues i had two things first i had to look up because she kept talking in her diary about playing patience and so i had to figure out what that was and turns out that's just their name for solitaire a variation of solitaire and so a lot of her diaries in the 20s and 30s, she's sitting around every night playing solitaire, which was which was awesome. And then I also learned after the Raymond episode that I needed to double check pronunciations on things because mom called me to tell me that I said Somerset Magram, which I did, and you just say mom. And she thought maybe that was just a Pennsylvania thing, but she looked it up and and I said it wrong. So I'm always making sure now that I check the names, which is why I need to publicly apologize to Barry because I messed up the name of his company every (laughs) single episode, uh, not realizing until my husband said, I think you're saying that wrong. He was listening. I say DeBar, DeBar Design, and it's not. It's the bear for Barry. Yes, it's the first syllable of my mm. name. And the bears, right? The bear. That's why I have a big bear as a logo. The bear design. The bear. The bear. The bear. The bear. I'll say his last name too because that one's the bear. Mindel. And then yeah, that's pretty good. You said exactly right. Most people want to have an extra syllable. Mindel. Yeah, I've got Mendel a lot, uh, Mindel even, but it's Mindel. Mindel. Well, there you go. So (laughs) I want to talk for a minute and get your opinion. And I did not give you guys this question, so you're going to have to answer it on the fly. But I like on the fly. In recording episode one in the diary entry, she talks about the fact that she's editing her life. And I brought along a picture. So I'm showing you all an example of something that she cut part out of. There's a good inch high of a letter that is a letter from Raymond to Elizabeth. So she wasn't just editing her diaries where she would rip out entire pages. 
Um, sometimes she would cut out certain lines, but even when things came to her, she was editing them. And so that's a letter that's not even from her that she cut that part out because she didn't want anybody reading it. And when I first was doing this podcast, doing the research, I was very annoyed by that. So was this piece of paper over what you were reading? Is this a copy you took? That's a photograph that I took of the letter. And it, but the page itself was, there was just a big hole in oh, the page. Okay. There's just a hole in the page. And so sometimes she would scribble things out. And if she scribbled it, I would work really hard to try to read it. And she must have figured out I was doing that. So then she started cutting things out completely. But anyway, I was irritated about it. And then I'm doing this house cleaning, deep house cleaning. And I got into this closet and ran across my diaries from childhood and my college years. And I opened up this one from college and I read three lines and I threw the whole thing in the garbage. Why so, would you do that? So then I realized I can't be mad at Elizabeth because I was looking and I'm like, there's so much about other people in here. These were their secrets. And also I don't really want to talk about any of this anymore. And I literally threw an entire journal out which afterwards, it hit me like two days later, you've been mean to Elizabeth this whole time and you literally just threw out a whole <laughs> book. So the question is, is it fair to edit your life? And if you edit your life, does it ruin the validity of whatever's left because it's curated? I would just say, Elizabeth's journals were based off of what she wanted to put in the journal to start with. Mm. So she was the author of her history by keeping a journal. Yeah. And as the author, she decided what she wanted included and what she didn't want included. So because she decided to leave part out of a letter, I mean, that was her choice mm -hmm. by keeping a history of her life, right? Most people don't keep such a detailed history of their life. She did a good job of keeping detailed history, but that can sometimes, um, I think, make people feel uncomfortable writing down every single thought that they have, every single thing that they've done, mistakes that they've made. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a pro I'm sure it's a process. I'm not a journal keeper, keeper or diary keeper. I wish I did a better job at that, but it also uh, gives us the thought maybe when we're teaching young kids to keep a journal, you know, make sure that this is something that you want to think about 30, 40, 50 years from now. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're keeping your journal, think about things that you're going to want your kids to read, your grandkids to read. And so when they look back on it 50 years, 60 years later, they don't throw it in the, you know, <laughs> garbage pail. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andrea, what do you have to say? You're thinking. Well, no, I mean, <clears throat> initially my thought is, like, through, like, when I was younger, I definitely kept a diary, and through college, I had a prayer journal, so that's essentially my diary, um, and my little cookie monster with a lock on it, like, to me, I would never throw that out, because, like, my little thoughts in there were just precious, but, like, thinking um, to where she was, and, like, the time where I was in college, there were definitely a lot of things that I was going through that maybe I wouldn't want um, exposed or I wouldn't want out there and, and I would essentially want to be the author of how I perceived my life to be or um, wanted you know others to see it so I mean I guess I understand that it's unfortunate because I think that the Robins were were cool people and and they wrote they wrote very very generously and very kindly about my family and Blake's family and so I, I love to see everything she's written so to see that she's taken little pieces out, I'm like, what's that in there? I want to see that. I know, you so badly want to know. Yeah, but I, I guess, like, I, I definitely agree with Blake. I understand that. And um, they were very much documenters of their life and the people around them. And they did a great job at that. So that's their right to do that. And um, as much as I would like to know, I, I get it. And I'd probably do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you guys. I mean, I think we all kind of are the authors of our own histories in a way. I mean, even look at what we do on social media, you yeah. know, so that's much kind of a of, new diary. It form. is, you that's know, true. That's true. so, you know, kind of putting only your best life out there has mm -hmm. become more and I think more a thing yes. as time has gone on even than obviously what Elizabeth Robbins has shown. So it would 
kind of be funny or interesting to me to see what an Elizabeth Robbins Facebook account would look like (laughs) from, from back then. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just part of naturally how we like to retell our own events and our own history and you know, it's why probably any one of our stories um, that we would tell people probably get better each time we, we say it. <laughs> um, so, yeah. To Barry's point about social media, I mean, we all have friends on social media, you know, social media friends. Yes. Um, who put a lot of negative stuff out there or talk mm-hmm. about their life probably more than they should. Mm-hmm. Or their the writings that they tell about themselves are always from a pessimistic point of view. And everyone always looks at those and says, why would you, you know, why would you put all of that on, on social media? Why would you talk about the negative things in your life so much, yeah. right? So she talks a lot about positive things, but she also talks about obviously some, you know, trials and tribulations yeah. I mean, that she, she has. She talks some smack about some people. Yeah. Probably won't ever show those, but she Right, <laughs> but you know, um, it, it still happens today where, you know, we put, we put our we try to put our best foot forward on on our social media diaries that we keep so mm-hmm. and i i think when when my husband and i were preaching we were we try, really tried to be very transparent and like not always tell the good stories but show where we'd struggled mm-hmm. but even choosing the struggles you're still making a decision of the kinds of things that you want to make public of this is something that I really dealt with or, you know, if it's related to your family, maybe waiting until the person that wounded you isn't around. I know sometimes people wait until their parents pass before they talk about certain things. And so there's being respectful of your own story, but then also being respectful of the people around you and the fact that you don't want to tell their story in a way Mm -hmm. that that they don't want it to be told. So it's, it's a balance. The Robins seemed really respectful in that manner, Mm -hmm. the way they wrote about people. Mm -hmm. I think so. So our listener question number one uh, is actually written to Elizabeth. And this is from Nina. She says, Elizabeth, please tell us about your experiences with suffragettes versus the police and politicians in England. Suffragettes fought awfully hard and were beat quite often for the right to vote. And then uh, the writer actually references an article that's on the JSU EDU Robbins web that Dr. Gates made. So love to see that people are following up and looking on that. And I just wanted to quickly explain the difference for listeners between a suffragist and a suffragette. A suffragist was someone that was fighting for the women to be able to vote normally through the normal political ways of petitions or talking to people or doing rallies. A suffragette was somebody that was breaking the law. And so that was a differentiation. So they were breaking windows, putting bombs in mailboxes, getting arrested, that kind of thing. So they made the decision that they'd already spent 70 years trying to get the right to vote and everybody kept patting them on the head and saying, absolutely, someday we'll do that. And so suffragettes, got fed up and said, we're gonna get attention in a different way. So I, I tend to compare it to like the difference between a Martin Luther King and a Malcolm X. They both have a part to play in how those things happen, but the attention, the intention of the suffragettes was to get attention for the movement. Did you wanna say something? No, that was okay. that was an interesting and very, good like for the audience I think a very good way to compare the the two and actually when you had told me that question ahead of time I was like what's a suffragette right (laughs) so it's interesting to hear that that was good well I'll just say I I think in changing policy and changing laws and advocating your government Mm -hmm. always following the law and always um, abiding by the law even if you don't agree with the law um, and and not breaking law and not trying to hurt other people Mm -hmm. in change because Who's remembered more kindly, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X? Mm-hmm. I mean, I want to be more of a Martin Luther King in my life, uh, you know, change through peace, right? Yes. And uh, trying to gain attention through harming others or harming property is just um, puts a very negative light on whatever type of change you're trying to make. No, and that's a personality thing, too, I think, too. What were you going to say, Barry? Yeah, no, it really is. I completely agree with Blake on that. Like, just the 
the idea that some of these things, most of them are very much almost like a game in some ways. And there's a way to play the game and get the results you're looking for. And cheating, going about it the wrong way, almost never works out in the long run. Yeah. So, yeah. So agree. Elizabeth never got arrested. She was an American living in England, and that was part of the motivation is she didn't want to get deported. Um, but she might disagree with you two a little bit. So I'm going to read. <laughs> squeaky wheel. She squeaky might. wheel gets the green. Uh, this is out of her book, Way Stations, which is a uh, just combining of speeches that she made, articles that were run about suffrage. And so this was from December 11th, 1906. It was a speech at the Savoy Hotel. Uh, Mrs. Fawcett, ladies and gentlemen, I'm called upon to propose a toast that needs little commending here. I think we all realize that the publicly expressed sympathy of a representative gathering such as this is a fact of no small significance. But an even more wonderful thing is true. There is now a large company outside these walls who say when the question of women's suffrage is broached, I am in favor of it. So this is just going back, getting out of the reading for a minute. This is 1906. Women in England would get the right to vote 12 years later. Back to the reading. We have it on the authority of the late prime minister that 420 members of parliament stand committed to this cause. We are told that the gracious sounding phrase, I am in favor, is on the lips even of the cabinet ministers. There is something almost monotonous about the unanimity in which the eminent are in favor of this measure. We do hear that legislators still portray a disposition to be dumb in public before the question, yet even they, the great majority of them, if speak they must, feel constrained to proclaim their favor. The strange thing is that so much favor should be so ineffectual. And then she goes on to say, if you're all in favor, how come every time the bill comes up, you're all voting no? Why are we 70 years into this and you've still voted no? And then it goes on um, a little bit later. She says, no one knew this better than the women who did the talking on October 23rd. It was their way of announcing the end of the world, the end of the world as it had been. You all know how they paid the price in that grim place, His Majesty's prison in Holloway. When we think of what they went through there, when we think of what they suffered from the tongues and pens of people safe outside, oh, very safe, safe from daring to do anything unpopular, impregnably safe from any temptation to cast their lot with the weak and the underrepresented. When we think of these things tonight, we are proud of the type of women the suffrage cause has forced to the front. So I think there is perpetually going to be a debate on how far is too far. Uh, I personally would tend to agree with you on on loss of property and obviously we don't want to hurt people but um you know I think there's times too when issues have come up and they're important enough that we do something that maybe the government's telling us is wrong so I don't know I can see it both ways it, it is an interesting point partly because I'm just thinking about it now and, and thinking that basically what suffrage meant was that voting was illegal so mm -hmm. we were we were in a way fighting against the law to begin with, um, or you as women were trying to change kind it. of yeah. trying to change, not, yeah. not, not to break the law necessarily, but just to, just to gain acceptance of yeah. this overall. Sneaking in and voting would be breaking the law. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I think it's very interesting. Um, and, and I kind of wonder, um, around this time, like what, what were the what was the key moment where like you could really feel the tides change like where you, you're going into these rooms with the politicians and you start to hear at least behind closed doors that they're supportive of the movement and like what what pressures were they feeling to do that politically where they didn't feel like they had the cover anymore to continue to be against um, well i think it, it was very helpful when um, church organizations got behind the right to vote okay. and I think that was a big tide change um, whereas before it was preached obviously not right. but um, when when religious organizations got involved in supporting the right to vote is when I think that helped obviously it wasn't yeah. the only thing but it was a uh, it, it helped change the tide I think in America at least I can't mm -hmm. speak to English yeah, uh, voting rights yeah. like no because again and it goes back to episode two which was on suffrage they did view it as a personhood issue so they wanted to be viewed as 
human beings who had, uh, you know, they were being taxed, they were out in the workplace getting taxed and they had no representation. So um, that was for them a personhood issue. So Blake, is there anything in your episode that you wish that we would have covered that we did not get to? We talked about Charlotte, Charlotte Etterington Snow running the home, running the farm, helping to raise her siblings um, after her parents die and she's in her early 20s. I wish we would have talked more about both Precious Ann Etterington and Charlotte Etterington Snow being strong women leaders on the Hill during the time mm -hmm. after Francis dies. We always talk about Francis Etterington. We always talk about Anderson's, Anderson Mayo, and they're important to talk about. Yeah. They're the ones who came and find the properties in Hernando County. They're the ones who built homes here. But I feel um, as the Manor House has never really um, highlighted those two women in the way that they should have been highlighted. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, this was a, was a hard period of time and not just Hernando County, all throughout the United States, right? right? right. We've just fought a civil war where brothers are fighting brothers on uh, battlefields and uh, the country is coming together, but the South has been completely devastated yeah. um, from an economic standpoint. And these two women then run this huge operation by themselves on top of this hill, which is very rural Florida at the time. And you don't hear that story enough. And I think right. it's an important story to tell. Um, I, I also think that Raymond oftentimes outshines Elizabeth. And All Elizabeth's story yeah. is oftentimes not told. And luckily through this podcast, you're telling Elizabeth's story yes. more. But Raymond, it's always, you know, the push by, you know, who's ever maintaining the home or whatever. It's always you tell the, the man's side, right? You tell yeah. about Francis Etterington. You tell about Raymond. You They never pick up on the strong women that mm -hmm. were in this home and um, were able to survive at times in this home. Yeah. From your episode, I've never really realized, like, I've always known, you've always said Charlotte was such a strong woman. She mm -hmm. raised her kids and like, that's always been, but I never realized the massive operation mm -hmm. that she eventually like came to run out here. At and 24 have, years old. Yeah. Right. By herself. And I've seen like yeah. the census yeah. and I think I showed you the census yeah. where it says she was the head of the household yeah. and then she, you've got all these like kiddos, which were her siblings, <laughs> right. yeah. but I never once thought of her running like the way that you guys put it together in that episode made me visualize her kind of like really managing yeah. something that was massive. And like, I was like, I never really saw her as that. Yeah. And Blake's always talked about her being like such a strong woman, but like that really made me see what a what a you know power lady she was for sure and that's cool yeah Very definitely cool. um yeah i just i love all the things kind of that happen in between right like it's the what's a day on the ranch like a day mm -hmm. at Finsegat hill like and that's why some of these diary entries when they get into almost the seemingly mundane things i think that's really really fun and those are yeah. the things i I always kind of feel like I want to hear more of that, you mm -hmm. know, but, but yeah. And that led me to in this most recent episode with, with Blake and, and uh, Bruce talking about the hurricane. I thought that part was really interesting and I'd love to uh, explore that more. I think you mentioned that was for another podcast. So yeah. I'm definitely going to be looking forward <laughs> to that one because um, when they you said all the leave house, so much to be desired, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, when you were saying the house actually physically moved, I'm mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, that's incredible. Um, One of it, the things that keeps me up at night is a letter from Margaret to her sister, where she says the first time she saw the house, it was on its side, chained to a tree. Oh, oh my god. And I can't like I can't, obviously yeah. it couldn't How have been completely on its that? side but it had to have been up enough that it looked and sideways. they did whatever they could to like keep and they, it to, to reestablish the foundation. Right. Wow. Yeah, so they literally lifted the whole thing up to redo the foundation but it, she said it was on its side. So Wow. I don't know. That's interesting. Whatever that means. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think too that um, I always think as somebody who has four kids about being pregnant 
on the trail from mm-hmm. South Carolina mm-hmm. to here. And I'm just telling you right now, <laughs> as mobile as I was, I would not have been sleeping under a way. I would have told Francis, come back in six months when the house is built and I don't, I'm not pregnant mm-hmm. and I will come. No, not interested mm-hmm. in doing that not without doing air conditioning. Yes. <laughs> no. I just want to say, I want to close by thanking you by taking this on. Thanks, Brooksville Main Street for, yes. for this project. I think it fits into the historical approach you're taking to the city and um, what a legacy that you're building here. Um, and I hope to see many more podcasts like this. Just real quick, um, you just, you like Elizabeth touches many different places mm-hmm. in her time and it's the Gilded Era. Is that what it says? Gilded Age. And oh, the Gilded Age. And I go and I sent this podcast to my friend in California who's definitely a big um, pro women uh, type. She, I was, you know, I sent it to her. And, and there's just so many different er- areas that Elizabeth touches on. But at the end of the day, like reading her diary entries, you realize she's just such a human yes. and she's a good human. And she just loves people. And that has been the biggest thing I've taken from the first season. I can't wait for more seasons. But coming from all of there, it's it's like Blake said, it's fun to hear about the family history and the way she sees our families. But it's mm-hmm. also just fun to hear about somebody who loved Brooksville and loved to be here, loved Chinsiga, loved her brother Raymond. And she loved the space. But she was just such an impactful person in general. And I, and I love every bit of what she touches and is involved in. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's the whole thing about it. And that's why, you know, no matter whether you have a direct connection or not, I think it's so much fun. We've completed season one and I'm super pleased with it, but there is so much more to talk about. It feels as though we know a lot more about the topics we covered, but we still don't know much at all about Elizabeth. Before we started recording, I'd mapped out eight seasons on a spreadsheet. But the further we got into the season, the more I felt the need to totally reframe season two. Instead of covering topics, I want to dig down into people in Elizabeth's life, like how Oscar Wilde established her European acting career, how Elizabeth helped Henry James convert his novels into plays, how her cousin Eleanor Calhoun became a princess, and why her friend Octavia Wilberforce told Elizabeth that her grandfather had freed every slave except her. But those are stories for another podcast. Thank you for listening to the Elizabeth Robbins Diary Podcast, a creation and production of Brooksville Main Street, a nonprofit focused on economic redevelopment through historic preservation and placemaking. The podcast is made possible with the help of a generous grant from Florida Humanities and the brilliant minds of our guest experts like Barry, Andrea, and Blake. Would you please consider following and rating the podcast? By following us, you'll be sure not to miss an episode. And rating is a super helpful way to help us spread the word and support all the hard work of the following people. Life Thomason of Odd Life Studios, who's patiently sat in this room with us this whole time <laughs> and edits, mixes, and masters it. And Life, thank you for making everything sound and look better than it really is. Tom and Patria die. I'm going to let you do this one. What do we want to thank Tom and Patria for? Um, for being a wonderful space in historic downtown Brooksville where people can go and record podcasts. And not only that, they can record their voice if they are musically inclined. They can, uh, on Thursdays, go and create music with all the fun musicians and artists and wonderful people that go there and just do that music thing but the podcasts too they're all about people and what the people's needs are in historic downtown brooksville like i'm gonna have you do the docents of chinsega hills historic site and andrea reed well these are folks who don't get paid to do what they love which is being um, lovers of history and that comes through in the research that they help provide and the, the guidance that they've given through this podcast and uh, through love, they've given treasure of history and yeah. that is um, to be thanked. So I'm going to do the next one, which is uh, New York University's Fails Library and the Special Collections, which is where all of Elizabeth's diary and letters are housed. And they don't own the management of those. That's owned by Independent Age, which is a registered charity. And you can find more about them at independentage.org. Um, I'm not going to make Barry thank himself. So, Andrea, you can do that. What are we thanking Barry for? We are thanking Barry for anything and everything that is visually pleasing. Um, 
Barry is absolutely wonderful at creating the most amazing graphics and pulling everything that is meaningful out of whatever we're looking to pull it from and making it just perfect for our eyes and we are grateful for all his graphics. And within moments. Within moments. It's crazy. He doesn't have children. He's the fastest (laughs) designer I have ever come across. I don't have enough to do it today. It's that simple. And that's the bear design. The bear. The The bear bear. dot design. D-A-B-A-R-R dot design. And Barry, I'm going to have you thank Elisa, who does our website and social. Yes. um, She does it all for us as well. Um, She is Brooksville Main Street's co-chair of the design committee with me. And as the owner of Roots Creative Company has Mm -hmm. put together the website, which is a gorgeous website um, for the Elizabeth Robbins Diary podcast, erdiary.com. Um, so definitely check that out where you can see all about the episodes, but also a lot of fun facts that you're that kind of go a little bit deeper into the stories. Um, and so she does everything from website design, social media, graphic design, everything. If you ever need help with any of it, I would definitely uh, give her a call. Very good. Look, you guys are so good at this. You should do it every time. Um, Randy Olson of Live Oak Theater, who wrote and performed our theme song, Time is Whispering. And I just want to mention, you guys can jump in afterwards if you want to, but I have that song in my head now all the time. And I was walking downtown the other day, and I feel like I have my own theme song that's playing. Oh, my God. <laughs> because I, I have so it in it's my so head. Good. Yeah. I, if, if I die before you guys, please make sure it's played at my funeral because <laughs> I just am obsessed with this song. Yeah, it's so good. Um, it's so good. And then thank you to Natalie for putting this entire production together and, uh, and doing it and getting this history out there and telling this story. Um, and I can say as an outsider um, at this point and a younger one at that, um, at this point, Elizabeth Robbins' voice, I think I was telling you the other day, might right. as well be yours because <laughs> right. that's all I have <laughs> is yeah. you reading her diaries. So that's just how I picture Elizabeth Robbins now. Very cool. And of course, we want to thank Elizabeth. I want to thank her for documenting. I want to thank her for being transparent. I want to thank her for being honest enough to edit herself because I do think it's an honor for me to produce this and write this and post this telling of her story. 